You're listening to The Peace Corner with a group of young, peace-hungry interns at GPAC, the global partnership for the prevention of armed conflict. In a world riddled with violent conflict, peace can feel elusive and peace-building can sound abstract. We want to change that with The Peace Corner. Who are the people breaking away from the discourses of hate and violence and transforming the status quo? What personally drives these people to peace-building? There are many stories of peace, some which inspire us, fill us with hope, and others which make us hungry for change. Each podcast, we talk to a different peace builder about their own personal experience in the field, from Nicaragua to Palestine and beyond. This is a chance to hear from the people putting themselves on the line for peace, the people who remain steadfast in their pursuit of more peaceful societies, and who incidentally are delightful to talk to. So nestle into a corner and listen to the voices making peace possible. I like to think that I was never not a feminist, but in reality, it wasn't until the last years of high school that I started to really concern myself with women's rights. At the time, I was asking myself some pretty basic questions. Why are women penalized for displaying qualities that are encouraged in men? Why did I think of male as the default and female as the other? Knowing that there is work to do to achieve true equality and wanting to be able to make a change, I decided to go on to study international relations and politics at university. Over the course of my degree, I was introduced to a variety of feminist perspectives. As a result, my passion for women's rights grew and changed. The works of Cynthia Enlow and J.N. Tickner made me start to ask new questions, like, why does gender continue to be sidelined when studying state behavior? How pervasive are the effects of gender inequality in a society? From there, my interests turned to how gender relations affect state security. When I finished my university degree and I found myself packing up my belongings, I made sure to keep my highlighted, annotated, and scrunched up copy of Tickner's You Just Don't Understand Troubled Engagements Between Feminists and IR Theorists. I wanted to hold on to the first feminist IR text I ever read and remember all the parts that had spoken to me. At university, I learned that the way we think about security is completely gendered. Today, I work with a group of people who are trying to change that. For this interview, I sat down with Sharon Bagwin-Rolls, a longtime feminist activist working in the field of women, peace, and security. Hello, welcome back to the Peace Corner. I am Maria Cipriani, and I'm joined today with Sharon Bagwin-Rolls. Hi, Sharon. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, Maria. Well, I'm speaking to you as um, a woman who has been involved in peace building, um, uh, the movement for gender equality and women's rights in the Pacific. And currently, I have the honor of being the chair of the uh, board of the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict, as well as the gender liaison for the International Steering Group. And um, another hat that I wear is as the co-chair of the Global Fund for Women. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Maria, particularly as I'm also a broadcaster. So I'm really pleased to see that uh, GPAC and young people from the GPAC network are involved in producing these podcasts. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. So let's get right into it. What motivated you personally to start working on women's inclusion and peace building and conflict prevention? I guess the story really starts um, when I joined the YWCA as a young woman. And um, it was really, you know, the guidance of my mother, who was a very important mentor for me or a woman mentor. And uh, she saw my interest in gender equality. She saw my interest in women's rights and 
she steered me towards the Young Women's Christian Association at home in Fiji, which had um, a very deep involvement globally in the women's movement, but also in the movement towards achieving women's rights and peace and justice as well. Um, I guess the, the focus on peace building um, is as a result of a series of crises and military coups that I've experienced in my home country of Fiji. And 1987, I was 21 years old when we faced our first military coup. Um, I have to admit, I was a very angry young woman at the time. And um, it was all about, you know, reclaiming one's rights and, um, and responding to uh, to what had happened, you know, the overthrow of a democratically elected government, mm-hmm. and seeing the need to to engage, but um, looking at ways to communicate, which um, having the support of the YWCA and the way in which we engaged was very important. So I found myself um, communicating in, in many different uh, ways, including using the media of the YWCA, so community media. But this more substantive journey has been um, following the crisis of 2000 when we had uh, another democratically elected government overthrown. And um, we mobilized together as women of the YWCA. Um, And at that time, I was the uh, volunteer uh, secretary of the National Council of Women. And we came together in response to that crisis. It was a very different time Mm -hmm. with the, you know, we had new technology as well. and And the way in which the coup was being reported was also very different. But what we did do as the women within two days of the overthrow of the government was mobilized together in a peace vigil at the Holy Trinity Anglican Cathedral. Um, And that first peace vigil on the 21st of May, the response was that we must continue this. And so we continued the peace vigil throughout the 56-day hostage crisis. Um, And I found myself once again as the communicator, the facilitator of that process, working with the women to engage with the media, to engage with other civil society, including the trade unions, um, you know, drafting uh, statements and position papers that were presented to the Great Council of Chiefs, to the Military Council. Um, There was the Women's Action for Democracy and Peace, which we also convened. So women were making time in the capital city um, despite the curfews and and putting their you know themselves at risk as well mm-hmm. to map way forward for once you know we had a political resolution and that was the time that we also came together as a small group of as the founding members of Femlink Pacific so the work has emerged over the last eighteen years both um, institutionally in the establishment and the work of Femlink, but also in a more personal journey in keeping track and finding ways of ensuring that any peace building process is accountable to women. Um, 
we have processes where we talk about meaningful participation, but it's finding ways in which to engage and support women's leadership. And uh, subsequently in 2009, with my role at FemLink, we uh, took on the role of the regional steering group with GPAC. And so, you know, this journey, particularly of the last 18 years, has also been a more deep personal engagement with UN Security Council Resolution 1325, Mm -hmm. um, regional and global level, as well as local, but also looking at ways to apply that resolution in broader peace building initiatives. And that's why um, the work with GPAC has been so important. Yeah. Right. And through this journey that you've been talking about, this very impressive long journey, what do you think, what would you say have been the main challenges you have faced in your work as a woman peace builder yourself? So we found ourselves in 2006 in Fiji facing another military coup. And that once again was looking, we had to look at ourselves to see what do we do as an organization what do you do as a peace builder when you're faced with a time of, um, of crisis? Um, and also when you have to take responsibility for your staff, your volunteers in that political situation. So that's always been difficult because the journey of a peace builder, you, it, it's not one of just the individual. And then also as a parent, taking responsibility for the safety and security of my children at all times in this journey has been really important. So it's been, um, how do we find ways, uh, the challenge has been, how do we find ways to communicate in a way that is safe for the women? Um, and, And also one that, at a time of crisis, you don't want to lose sight of the gender equality agenda. Mm-hmm. And so that's been another challenge as well, because I think when it comes to political processes, quite often, even from a mediation perspective, the gender agenda, the gender equality agenda, women's participation gets pushed aside into the too hard basket. And you end up seeing that resolution of conflicts or situations are done with the perpetrators and those in political power, rather than being an inclusive process that recognizes the work of women on the ground. And and I'm seeing that more and more even at, you know, as we connect with the gender focal points, the gender experts through the GPAC network, that that continues to be a challenge. Right. Um, you talked a little bit about, uh, you mentioned Femling Pacific and a little bit about your work in the media. Um, I wanted to know, since your work has focused mainly on the intersection between media, women's rights and peace, um, if you could tell us a little bit about what a feminist media approach is and how it can help empower women. Well, I have to acknowledge one of my other women tours, uh, Dr. Anne Walker, who um, actually helped establish the YWCA in Fiji many decades ago, but also went on to establish the International Women's Tribune Center. And it was a very important initiative in terms of having information flow from the United Nations to women on the ground, including younger women like me through their publications. And as we were developing FemLink, I remember Anne being a very important guide in terms of exactly that question, what does a feminist media network look like? But also the day the resolution was adopted, she sent me an email saying, 
You've got Section J of the Beijing Platform for Action. Now you have the Security Council Resolution 1325. So a feminist media organizing uh, organization like FemLink has has taken a look at one, obviously ensuring that there is a regulatory environment that enables community media to function and operate. Um, and, and that's been really important in terms of the establishment of the community radio network. And the organization has come a long way since it first started with one suitcase radio to now having a radio network, including two permanent stations, one in a rural center. So feminist media networking has meant obviously looking at the policy regulatory framework, but also applying a community media approach applying a um, communications for peace approach and applying a, a solutions-based journalism approach to the engagement with women. So it's a couple of things. It's sharing the technology so um, whereby you support women, young women, to, to understand the technology and utilize the technology in the different ways that can amplify what they're saying from their communities. And it's establishing a program infrastructure where the producers are not necessarily on the, um, in, only in the capital, but there is a program infrastructure that ensures the voices of women and their definitions of peace and human security are coming through the channels up into the radio broadcasts and the other media initiatives. And it's also um, challenging the status quo in terms of media content, where if you look at the work around the Global Media Monitoring Project, which I've been involved with for a number of decades now, I guess, um, is saying that up until such time that there is a balance in media content, in mainstream media content, where women are making the news as leaders, um, whether at community level or in politics, as, as experts on a range of issues, we will continue to tell the story of women. So feminist media, in a sense, is a special measure that ensures that women are not um, ghettoized into just being um, featured on the nice women's program that involves recipes and news from Bollywood or Hollywood, but actually tells the story of who they are, what they're doing, and their visions and recommendations for sustainable development, peace um, in, in all diversities. Yeah. That's really amazing. Um, you've brought it up a couple of times already, but I wanted I want to talk a little bit about UN Security Council Resolution 1325. But before we get into it, for listeners who may not know, can you tell us a little bit uh, briefly what it is maybe? Well, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, uh, to quote Ambassador Chaudhary, um, who was the chair of the Security Council when it was adopted, is um, the mother of all resolutions. It was the first Security Council resolution that brought women's rights into the agenda of the Security Council. And since then, there have been a suite of resolutions or sister resolutions, but it really brought into, it builds, it builds on the, the section of the Beijing Platform for Action as a global policy commitment to progressing women's rights. 
and gender equality. And there's a section on women in armed conflict. So it builds on those commitments, but it brings it into the Security Council. And it says, women are leaders. Women are not just vulnerable. Women are first responders in times of crisis situations. And women must be um, allowed and that space when um, uh, to participate. Women's uh, protection at all times of crisis must be included. Um, and women must be playing the lead in terms of prevention action as well. So it, it looks at, you know, the three P's around participation, protection, um, et cetera. But so it's a Security Council resolution that really does require the Security Council to take into account the diverse needs of women when they are deliberating. Mm-hmm. It's so important for this field of work. And there is a huge milestone coming up. It will be 20 years since its adoption in 2020. Um, This is so important because there will be reviews coming up, obviously. Uh, so what do you think, in your opinion, can be done leading up to 2020 to further the implementation of this resolution? And also, do you think, where are we now with it, 18 years on? So I'll just take a step back to 2010 because I was uh, a member of the first uh, Global Civil Society Advisory Group for the Uh, 1325 plus 10 review. And then I also had the privilege and honor of being part of the high-level advisory group in 2015. So I've seen a number of the reviews um, at the official level. And I would say, um, because we've just been talking about this, you know, a few weeks ago as the result of our GPAC Gender Focal Points Week um, at the UN Security Council Open Debate. So there are a couple of things that we need to do. I don't think we need to have another substantive review. I think this is a time where we can take the substantive global study of 2015 authored by Radhika Kumaraswamy to look at um, what are those recommendations? What were the recommendations in, you know, in, in so many substantive areas that were identified as part of the women, peace and security agenda? So that needs to happen. We need to do that as women's civil society, as women's peace activists, as feminists involved in working towards the realization of sustainable peace. So we need to do that. We need to do our homework. We need to be able to also ensure and support, and I think this is where GPAC is really well positioned, to take that conversation through to our regional and our national networks, because those recommendations must resonate with women in their communities. Um, we can't just have a few of us coming together because if we talk about meaningful participation, we need to ensure that it truly is meaningful and inclusive. And so that, that is why I feel that, you know, GPAC has that infrastructure to be able to support it. Um, those recommendations need to be heard by national governments, by regional intergovernmental organizations, and of course, the Security Council. So it's really important, I think, to put the focus back at the regional and country level because by 2020, we will also have the 25 years of the Beijing Platform for Action. We will also be looking at you know, the SDGs and its progress since it was adopted in 2015. So it'll be 
SDG plus five. And we need to be seeing that as we go forward, these commitments to the Women, Peace and Security agenda are informing the progress towards building an inclusive society, a peaceful society, wherever women are within their communities, with their children, with their families, with the different roles that they play. Um, and so I think that that would be a very important process. At the UN level, I'm hoping that um, the Security Council will think deeply about ways in which in 2020, it can be engaging with peace networks, such as you know the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security that we're involved in. We had a fantastic multi-stakeholder forum ahead of the open debate this year with members of the Security Council on several key themes. And I think those four themes need to be carried forward, not just into like one open debate event, which is not actually a debate, it's a series of statements, but really having substantive conversations throughout 2020 from CSW to the anniversary of 1325 with ARIA formulas that are bringing women from the ground to engage with the Security Council and, and other member states. So for me, that, that would look like um, a beneficial commemoration of 1325 plus 20. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, and you just touched upon just, just now GPAC being particularly well-placed to do some of these things. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that you're a part, obviously, of GPAC and it's a global network. And within it, you're part of a global network of gender experts. Um, I wanted to ask what it means for your work to be part of this global network and what can be accomplished by being a part of it that would maybe be harder to achieve otherwise. I think GPAC has really come a long way since we first drafted the gender policy and it was adopted by the RSG, uh, the Regional Steering Group meeting. And we're obviously in a process of reviewing the gender policy and we've seen a couple of things. One, there is a commitment by GPAC, and I say this as a feminist, not just because I happen to be the chair of the board, but uh, a willingness by the membership, by the team of GPAC to to apply the gender policy internally as well as externally because you cannot make changes if you're not changing within an organization. And so we're seeing that with the evolution of from one gender focal point to the um, on the international steering group to, as you've said, the pool of gender experts who are engaging in so many different working groups and providing their expertise. They're, we're infusing the gender equality 1325 through the work that we're doing. So I think that's really important. And, and that's why I think that um, there is great opportunity and value in 2019 into 2020 as we develop our new strategic plan as GPAC to also see how can that be applied, how can it be tracked, how can gender-inclusive conflict prevention and peace building be communicated in a way that reaches peace builders? So for me, this is also about um, supporting the gender experts in a way that it's not, as I said, we don't, wanna, we don't ghettoize women, peace and security to a group of women who you know, like to talk about women's rights and gender equality, but it's, it becomes standard operating procedures. So for me, it, it's really important to see that. 
I think where we can strengthen our work is um, on an intergenerational level. We should be looking at how, as we work towards 1325 plus 20, we build on the knowledge of, of women who have been working, but also start to create that space of interaction, particularly as we have made a commitment to the youth peace and security agenda. And, and that, you know, when it comes to young women's peace and security, supporting young women as well to, to stand up and, be, and become stronger leaders, but also recognizing that they too have some very unique challenges um, that you have to negotiate. And I'm speaking to you, Maria, as a young woman, mm -hmm. um, thinking of my daughter in my head, I'm thinking of other young women who I work with, that you have to be able to find ways to work with the older women, but also we can support younger women to negotiate things where we didn't have to deal with things that you are having to deal with now. And I think that's the intergenerational approach that I'm really interested in in supporting and moving forward. Mm -hmm. And would you say that being part of this, uh, this network of gender experts makes that easier? I know we have some younger experts in certain regions, makes that information sharing process and uh, maybe best practices sharing process easier? It, it's a start. I would like to say it's a start. I, I would say that we will need to find ways, and I hope that there are partners tuning into the podcast who can also help us make this interface possible because it, it's also about the personal relationships. We can do a lot online. We can have communications, but the interaction and the personal level of engagement is so important. So I think we need to be looking at ways that we can channel the resources to make that possible, both in because it's, it's looking at the broad issue, but then we also need to look at it in ways of how do we strengthen our work together as gender experts, as fem, you know, bringing in a feminist practice on peace building, on dialogue and mediation, on peace education on outreach, on network building. So we, we need to be looking at it through the different strands of the work we do as GPAC. All right. Um, I wanted to close by asking about the progress you've seen so far. Uh, since you started working in this field, have you seen significant progress uh, in the inclusion of women in peace processes in the Pacific region specifically? Um, we're challenged in the Pacific. I, um, I, I've written a lot about it. 2010, we were able to catalyze and mobilize the work towards the adoption of the first regional action plan on women, peace and security, the Pacific Regional Action Plan. It was uh, supported by the Secretariat of the Pacific Community um, in terms of uh, uh, progressing the gender equality agenda, We had a working group that brought together women's civil society with the United Nations and member states. It was the most cost-effective action plan ever. It drew on women's experiences and it was adopted by the Pacific Forum leaders in 2011. However, the three-year plan from 2012 to 2015 was never realized. Mm. Um, and so I am disappointed because that could have guided so much of the conversation around the reshaping of the Pacific regional peace and security architecture 
Uh, we now have a bow declaration and I don't yet see recommendations of the regional action plan in this new political declaration being recommended. We do have a focus on, you know, there is, um, there are challenges in my region in terms of women's political leadership, in terms of the, you know, the prevalence of sexual gender-based violence. So we need to find ways to get a better understanding that the women, peace and security agenda is not a vertical action. It's horizontal. It needs to be infused in all efforts to progress the gender equality and women's rights agenda. It needs to be applied to the development agenda, to the humanitarian and climate change agenda. And, and where I'm pleased is that the GPAC Pacific Network has been a voice for that. But in the next two years, as we move towards 2020, 13, 25 plus 20, I'm really hoping that at the intergovernmental level, there will be greater effort to recognize the need to work with women who come from peace building practice. Um, we need to have that kind of um, expertise brought into these processes and also bring in the expertise as we can do from the GPAC network globally. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us and where you think we can make more progress. I hope we do. I hope 2020 will be a great milestone for 1325. Um, so thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Maria. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Peace Corner. Thank you for listening to the voices making peace possible. Tune in next time when our communication intern, Charlotte, talks to Mary Joyce, International Coordinator at Peacebo, to explore dialogue for peace in and around the Korean Peninsula.